0: In this episode of the 21st Century Classroom, we talk with legendary awesome stats guy Mark Olofsson, now Dr. Legendary Awesome Stats Guy Mark Olofsson, about his research into adverse childhood events and school performance. It's some pretty important stuff about how the intersecting traumas that affect students have some long-reaching consequences. Who is Dr. Mark Olofsson? Well, You may remember Mark from his awesome work on some of our previous podcast episodes and from his Science Saturdays column over on our blog. But what you might not know is that for the past four years, Mark has been doing some pretty beefy and hugely important research in adverse childhood events and how they impact students' school performance. So we sat down with him and got the straight story.
1: Uh, I'm Mark Olofsson. Uh, I am the research fellow here at the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education, uh, and I just uh, successfully defended uh, for my Ph.D. in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Vermont. So that is who I am and what I just did. Um, So I get to to be a Ph.D., interestingly enough. First Ph.D. in my family from either side. Both my mom's side and my dad's side, so that's fun. Uh, My research looks at... um, adversity and development, families and neighborhoods, and school climate, and how all these things kind of intersect and play out. And we, what I do is I measure, th- measure sort of like cognitive outcomes um, in young adolescents. So I got into this. I used to teach uh, middle grade and high school science and mathematics. And I worked at an alternative school. I did some student teaching at a... Um, uh, really alternative school. I, I worked at a bilingual school. And something that always really struck me and, and really hit me pretty deeply was this idea that kind of no matter what I do in the classroom as a science teacher, as a mathematics teacher, kids come in the classroom with a whole bunch of other stuff, right? And I think in some places we think about this as, are they, you know, ready to learn? Are they ready to do school? But that didn't really ring true for me. It seemed like there was a, some, some deeper issues going on, right? And that simply, you know, a uh, a before school program for you know 20 minutes to do some mindfulness and meditation this these types of things weren't really gonna weren't really going to address the problems I see it we know that you know a solid two-thirds of um, a kid's academic performance can be great it can be uh, can be uh, predicted with them walking in the door if we just know their home conditions their, like their socioeconomic status conditions, um, demographic conditions, all these different things, um, we can do a pretty decent job of predicting uh, their academic outcomes. And um, so that idea, you know, has really stuck with me. And so this led me down the line of getting more into what are those developmental influences? What, what are those things that influence, you know, outcomes for kids? And then how can we measure them? The first thing I kind of did was, was, was work with a, a way of talking about adversity. Was the, That's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Framework, or the ACEs Framework. And I'll say ACEs a bunch of times. It started off as a checklist of a bunch of different questions that uh, this research team out in San Diego asked like 17,000 people. Um, and then they looked at the trends, and, and they were about the upbringing, the childhood conditions for these folks. They looked at the... Um, they looked at the trends in those childhood conditions and they compared them to uh, outcomes in adulthood. These were like health outcomes, smoking, obesity, heart disease, these types of things. Uh, And they made this comparison and they saw the more adversity at the childhood level and they identified which, uh, which adverse conditions ended up being salient to these adult outcomes. More adversity in childhood, worse outcomes, right? Some other researchers, have said, okay, what if we don't wait for adulthood? What if we look at these outcomes in adolescence and in young adolescents? And they've been able to see a lot of the same things, right? And so we know that these adverse childhood experiences are good predictors for um, adolescent, and young adolescent outcomes, developmental outcomes. Those can be both behavioral outcomes, internalizing behaviors, externalizing behaviors, and these cognitive outcomes, which is what I used in my study. Then there's this, uh, there's this framework for thinking about uh, child development. A developmental model that really spoke to me and that's really widely used in the field and used uh, by like the World Health Organization, used by the CDC, um, is this uh, the bioecological model of development. And what that means is that we it's important for us as researchers to understand all the different contexts in which Uh, somebody's development takes place. So we need to know about the family life, we need to know about the neighborhood, we need to know about the school, we need to know about peer interactions. And we think about development as happening as the individual interacts with these different systems that they're embedded in. But also in understanding that these different systems interact with each other. The bioecological model also goes up and thinks about, oh, there's these larger societal contexts, right? In my work specifically, I look at the the families, the neighborhoods, and the schools. Um, as I say, yeah, families, neighborhoods, and schools. <laughs> Good gravy, Mark. Um, and then I also look at the individual child's adversity. And so I created a model for adversity. Oh, oh, and let me tell you about this data. Oh man, this data. So um, there's this cool data, it's, uh, It's collected by the U.S., Um, it's housed at the University of Michigan, it's nationally representative, it's called the Panel Study for Income Dynamics. They've been collecting all this interesting data on folks in the country, um, and not in a weird sort of like, we're collecting data on you, but they go and they ask the people the questions, and they're like, you're part of this study, and the people say, oh, I'm part of this study, and you get paid, and all this stuff, right? So, um... They started this back in the late 60s and they followed these families and the people in these families uh, consistently all the way through. Back in the late 90s, they decided they were going to get a whole bunch of information about the kids in particular in these families. And so they collected a whole bunch of data on them. And then that's the data that I use because it's really uh, interesting and you know, it's a bunch of different indicators and it allows us to get a really rich portrait of these kids' lives. So I use the Panel Study for Income Dynamics Child Development Supplement uh, and I use the Second Wave. Uh, that's a little nerdy, it's okay. Um, and so uh, I go in, I take all this data, I pull the, all these discrete indicators that are about adversity, and I make a latent variable for it, right? So now I've got an indicator of adversity. And then I take all these indicators of family conflict and I map them onto a latent variable of family conflict. Now I've got a family conflict bubble, right? Um, i I take all these indicators of neighborhood quality, and now I map them onto a latent variable. I've got a neighborhood quality bubble. So it can be really complicated. and that's why I um, I boiled it down to really looking at school safety. Uh, school safety was things like fighting in the halls, uh, verbal abuse um, among teachers, among students, um, weapons, drugs, alcohol, Um, These sorts of uh, sort of like hard indicators of of is the school a safe place or not. Um, I chose that because it's so important for elementary and middle school kids to be at a fundamental level, have a school be a physically safe space um, so that they can start to form the relationships with teachers and with uh, school staff and with each other that we know lead to better learning, right? Um, And if you don't have that fundamental school is a safe space in there, then those relationships aren't gonna happen because it's, it's gonna be a toxic space, it's gonna be a scary space and people don't form relationships um, when they're worried about their physical or mental health. So um, anyway, that's, that's my school safety bubble. And so what I did through the course of three different studies is I built up these measurements and then I started relating them to each other. And we can, uh, using the structural equation modeling stuff, you can Move them around and place them in different ways um, to model on to, to create models that come from your your theoretical framework, your your bio bioecological model, right? And so what I did is I thought about neighborhoods as functioning through the individual, and the same thing, thinking about this family conflict functioning through the individual. So instead of modeling neighborhoods as having a direct effect on outcomes, I modeled them as having an indirect effect. Like, neighborhoods influence kids, and then kids are measured by the cognitive outcomes. Same thing with the family conflict. Conflicts affect kids. Kids have these cognitive outcomes. The kid is measured by the adverse childhood experiences, and they also do include demographic controls, which are really important, because otherwise you're saying that, like, all kids are the same, which is not true. Um, Anyway, so I put all these pieces in. Um, I got some results that showed that, that... gave me sort of like evidence to say that that indirect modeling is the way to go, that direct modeling is doesn't work out, um, everything kind of falls apart um, in the models. Um, so I did that and then I brought in this school safety variable. So because the idea is if I can improve the safety of a school setting and disproportionately help kids coming from highly adverse backgrounds, then I'm gonna do that, right? Um, the model showed that increases in school safety helped everybody when we pooled everybody from different adversity levels into the the same bucket it helps everybody then i split it apart and i split it apart between low and medium adverse kids and highly adverse kids and unlike what i had hypothesized the school climate like change it or school safety rather Make the school safety better, you get better cognitive outcomes for kids from low and middle adverse levels, right? So kids where, you know, there's not as many of these adverse conditions, comparatively, if you increase school safety, we see higher cognitive outcomes. That's great. But for kids from highly adverse backgrounds, you can make the school safety better, it doesn't affect the cognitive outcomes. So kids from, kids with high adversity, if you make the school more safe, you don't get the increase in cognitive outcomes. Wild. Mm -hmm.
0: That's a huge finding.
1: It it goes back to the idea that schools can only do so much and that there's a threshold of adversity of kids walking in the door with enough bad stuff going on that it kind of doesn't matter what you do in the school because they're... All this stuff at home that they, they live in a, a home characterized by conflict. Uh, they are coming from neighborhoods where they they don't feel safe walking down the street. They don't have an adult in this in the neighborhood that they identify with. If you know if if the people in their home are their parents or not. You know if somebody's been incarcerated. If there's substance abuse in the home. These types of things. But you get to a certain level of all of this bad stuff is happening. And it doesn't matter how good you make schools, you're not gonna have a positive outcome. So, what this means, and what this means sort of like in our local context. First, schools matter, right? Um, Because for those low and and middle adversity kids, um, which is a lot of kids, You make the school more safe, you get the better outcomes. It's a great argument. And we also know that you make the school safe, you get better relationships between, and those interpersonal relationships between adults and kids can help kids from highly adverse conditions. We know that that's true. And we know that like principles and leadership can make a big difference when you're trying to do school reforms of this type. When you're trying to like improve your school climate, you need strong leadership with good vision to say this is what we're gonna do and this is why we're gonna do it, right? All that stuff is true, but what this final conclusion really points out is that just working on your school isn't enough. That we also need to think about how can we make our neighborhoods and our communities better to support these kids. How can we um, how can we help families be better, right? Um, and how can we start to address those fundamental uh, fundamental pieces of adversity in a kid's life? Because if we want kids to be able to like perform well at school and have high cognitive functioning and be able to like, you know, do, get into the workforce, get into additional secondary education, all these things. It's not gonna be enough just to have like this discrete program at the school where it's like, oh, this is, uh, this is what we're doing to help kids and we're gonna have a zero tolerance policy on fighting and we're gonna, you know, these types of things. That we need to think about wraparound services. And uh, what folks call like packages of policies. And that means, you know, everything from uh, improving food security at the home, uh, improving working conditions for parents. We go back to that whole map of things that intersect, that whole bioecological map, right? That's where we get to go back to that larger. Um, model of development and think about how can we as a society or groups in society help to support that? How can we help make conne- make connections, make stronger families, make stronger uh, neighborhoods and um, and and help sort of like with that wrap around support for kids? Um, so for me, that was really uh, kind of kind of one of the big punchlines for this research is that even though you know i'm I'm an educator, I come from teaching, I come from schools and I think, that schools can do a lot, and I know that schools can do a lot, um, schools can't do everything. What does it mean to help kids from like low socioeconomic uh, conditions to succeed, right? What does it look like to help them? And so I think that it's important for us to know that and to you know when we're individually working with kids to keep that in mind that there's this whole constellation of things that you know end up being reflected in this endpoint outcome and for us to think about as teachers as school leaders as citizens in our community as voters in the state of vermont um, to think about to think more widely about what types of policies what types of programs are gonna be necessary at these multiple different levels to support all kids um, to be able to be successful in our state.
0: This is a pretty both involved study and a pretty sort of specific uh, research aim at the same time. Can you tell me a little bit about your, how, how did you come up with, the, with your research question?
1: It's um, a really good question. Uh, I think I got to my research questions um, in a few different ways. One was driven by the the theoretical framework. So I've been working with this, uh, this framework for a while now. It emerged in a couple of different classes, um, really made a lot of sense to me. It's really kind of directed my attention, thinking about what teachers can do and then also what are the thing what, what are the domains that teachers can affect, you know. I think also part for me is being able to be really embedded here at the University of Vermont, be surrounded by people who are like talking th- about things and thinking about things. Um, and so it's, everything's just sort of like percolates and, and kind of combines into uh, some questions that then I get to go out and research and see, is anybody tackling this same stuff in this same way? You know, and then it's a process of, okay, here's the general category, and then starting to slice things in discrete and testable uh, research questions, um, which is, you know, an iterative process and a collaborative process getting to work with um, other student like uh, peers in my cohort, in my doctoral cohort. Um, I did always have this strand of um, the importance of communities and neighborhoods and families, this wider constellation of influencers and outcomes, but just there's been a lot of focus, and I really appreciate that about um, about kids and really having kids at the center.
0: What do you What do you hope is are some concrete steps that result from the uh, the findings of your research? Yeah, it's,
1: it's a really good question. The outcomes from this research and additional research have the ability to allow me to speak and to write directly for, you know, uh, types of policies that, and policy is such a big, chunky word, and it just means things we should do. Um, be those formalized things at a state level or for me working in more of a, at a community level, um, where you can have sort of direct effects to influence the way that, you know, different organizations, different schools think about these things. And so being able to add to, you know, these, um, collected bodies of research and be able to like nudge in certain directions and to be able to provide additional, uh, pieces of evidence, um, that's really... You know right now where i see my work is it's this additional evidence to include all these different um, indicators into all of these different developmental contexts so just like before when i said you know the aces they started looking at only adults but then they saw they could look at adolescents so i get to i'm adding to the emerging literature that says we can also see outcomes in elementary and middle school right um, so I get to push that down to that level, which helps us think about, oh, adversity, you know, has direct effects on my elementary school kids and adversity measured in these ways. There's- that's where the
0: richness of your your stats background comes in, and and that's where you you get to to uh, apply all of the the awesome stats knowledge that you possess to point out that you can do you can make amazingly graded, Um, pictures of data and make it tell you amazing things just by using equations.
1: And that's one of the things that I think moved me over into being a quantitative researcher for my dissertation work was because I got exposed to some cool methods that were doing that work, you know, really, and that hit me as at a personal level that was like, oh, you can do really interesting, descriptive, and rich work um, if you're, if you go down the right routes with your methods. So, um, yeah, so being able to influence the way that these questions are tackled, being able to influence the types of indicators or, or considerations that we make when we're asking these questions, and then being able to add to an ever-growing um, you know, uh, consensus about uh, what's important in the lives of kids, in the development, development of kids. And then being able to add to the what types of policies or programs at a individual level, at a community level, at a state level, should we be arguing for in order to help kids the that are you know coming from highly adverse conditions? You know, the types of the hopefully the the larger goals to be able to have an impact with my research.
0: Do you think that there's anything in your experiences as a teacher that informed the choice of your uh, research?
1: So absolutely, um, because as a teacher, you know, I saw, um, I saw all to- all types of kids come through my door, um, and I, you know, had the direct experience of being able to sometimes make an impact, and then other days you just had to give kids space because stuff had happened, stuff that I can't control. You can't be for all students. You can't be a social worker and a surrogate parent and a safe person in their neighborhood. And uh, you know, at the end, of the, you you also have to be a teacher. You know, um, and so I, I really saw that. I saw that you know, kids day to day would be different. I also um, in the school where I worked, we had an advisory system, and I got really close with my advisees, and you know, um, got to hear personal stories from kids, and you know helped connect kids to services. How am I going to, coming from a sort of a traditional teacher background, go and have a conversation about accountability and schoolwork with that student, knowing that there's all these other things in his or her life that are going on, right? Now, here in the future, that being able to, you know, add to this way of thinking about kids in the classroom um, as, you know, Human beings that have these conditions at home, these conditions in their neighborhood, you know these these ground these fundamental conditions and experiences in their in their childhood. Then can we can we change what that, you know what that conversation of this is an incomplete. I can't believe this is still an incomplete. This was supposed to be done two weeks ago. Can we change that conversation, you know, um, because that's not doing a kid any favors. Um, and it's not it's not helping with their learning. It's not helping with their overall development. So um, no, absolutely. The my time as a teacher really it brought a lot of that stuff into harsh relief. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, it, it did a lot, and so I think that it um, definitely pushed me uh, into thinking about this this kids in a, a much wider and richer way.
0: What's the one takeaway that you hope that educators listening to this, this episode get from uh, learning about your research?
1: It may seem a little tangential, but I think that it's the most important thing, and it's relationships with kids. Um, that, uh, and it's just so vital for every kid to have a solid relationship with an adult in their life. Um, and you can be that adult. You can't be that adult for every kid in your classroom, and you don't need to be. Potentially, they don't have strong relationships with adults. And as a teacher, you can be another person, another adult in their life who is holding them to unreasonable standards that they don't understand and that they don't have the they don't have the capability because there's too many things going on for them to meet those standards. Or you can be an adult that they form an interpersonal relationship with and that they can start to um, identify with and find a safe space and be able to express themselves and be able to like learn and grow and open up. And so I just think that it's so important because teachers are right there. Um, They see kids every day and and it's not just teachers, it's principals, it's staff members, kids just need an adult they need an adult to identify with. And it doesn't have to be that much work. You don't have to take care of everything in a kid's life. You just need to be a steady, solid, understanding and open presence that they can form an interpersonal relationship with. I've seen you know, a special educator working with a kid who's not in, even on his caseload that he just sees in the hall and like they get lunch sometimes and having a fundamental change on that kid's life. Right? I've seen, uh, like, uh, random school coaches who don't even have this student in their class, but you know, you just hang around a little bit before practice and after practice and ask them how they're doing. Ask them if, uh, you know, ask them if when they go home, if there's going to be somebody there, you know, these types of things, to form those relationships that can you know can make a really big difference um and uh so yeah i think that be open to having relationships uh to to being that solid steady adult in a kid's life because it may not even seem like it was that big of a deal to you but it can make a world of difference to them
0: This has been an episode of the 21st Century Classroom, podcast of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. Find out more about us at blog.tarrantinstitute.org.